Michael Marin is a journalist, filmmaker, and former aid worker. He's written scripts for HBO, Sony Pictures, and many independent producers. His film, A Short Story of Decay, was a funny and moving examination of a writer, Brian Greenberg, visiting his ailing parents, played by Linda Lavin and Harris Eulin. His forthcoming film is an adaptation of Chris Beldwin's novel, Shriver. It's a comedy set at a writer's conference and stars Michael Shannon, Kate Hudson, Don Johnson, and Zach Braff. Marin has taught screenwriting at Wesleyan University, Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, Tao's Summer Writers Workshop, and co-directs the Sirenland Writers Conference. He created the film series under the influence Writers on Film. Interviewing Michael Marin is Mia Funk. The creative process is excited to learn more about Michael Marin's career. Michael Marin, welcome to the creative process. Thanks, Mia. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how you like to define yourself. You're a writer, you're a director, you came up as a, as a foreign war correspondent, as a volunteer. Um, you know, it's quite an interesting trajectory, I think, for anyone you know, who might want to become a director. So just, could you describe how you fell in love with telling stories? Um, you know, when I, I mean, it's funny, when I was in, okay, I'll tell you that when I was in fifth grade, we used to write, they used to have a little creative writing thing and people would write stories. And I, I remember the story I wrote and it was about how, how I'd flipped over a go-kart as a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I got all banged up on it. Um, but where, every, where everybody else was starting their stories, I, I, and I don't know why I did this, but we were all, I remember everyone else in the class was starting their student stories with, you know, so I woke up in the morning and I went through the blah, blah. I decided, I just, I, again, I'm, I don't know, I'm nine years old. Um, I just cut to the chase and talked about being in the air with the go-kart rolling over. And the teacher was blown away. Um, and she in fifth grade, she said, you're a really good writer. Yeah. And I never forgot that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of like teachers and encouragement and, and, and sort of, I think about that a lot mm-hmm. because I don't know that I would have ever taken that trajectory in life if somebody hadn't told me at, at that age that I was a good writer and a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, I, I wrote fiction, I wrote poetry in high school. I've got no really embarrassing notebooks full of stuff. Um, some of which I recently destroyed, but, oh. but I did, but I, I, but I did, I constantly wrote and, 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 and I read a lot. Uh, I wasn't a great student because I always read what I wanted to read, not what I was supposed to read. Well, you were actually curious. That's an important point. Well, I was I was curious, and I spent a lot of time in the library, and and I and um, I would go off on tangents a lot, and and I, I didn't I don't ha- I don't have what one might call a disciplined mind. Mm. Um, I, I think uh, I, I I've learned to I just free associate with with things, and there aren't that many. I, I don't think there are that many professions where the ability to do that is an advantage. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really have a disciplined mind. I, I, I've always been somebody. I, I've always free associated with with things, and, and I, I, I've had this. And I think this is why journalism appealed to me. I, I, I think I followed my passions, uh, not what I was supposed to do. 
uh, in, in terms of, I mean, I'm talking high school now, you know, yeah. so, um, and then I, I went to college and, and I think the other life-changing thing that, that happened to me was my college had a semester abroad in India. And this is in uh, 1974, which, mm-hmm. and there weren't that many colleges that had uh, abroad programs in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was a relatively new thing. And so, um, my girlfriend broke up with me and I thought, oh, I have to leave the country. I'm, I'm, I'm so heartbroken. There's a program in India. I'm leaving. Uh, and that, cha- that also was, was sort of a life-changing thing because I, I, I think I learned then uh, that my uh, sort of a natural curiosity and a natural kind of ability and, and a willingness to like walk up and talk to anybody about anything at any time. Uh, which embarrasses, which used to embarrass my son when he was a teenager. Um, but uh, the, I, I just felt India was, was such an incredible amount of input in terms of, you know, uh, visually and, uh, you know, audit, auditorily and, 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 you know, the smells and the sight. I, I was, I was in heaven. I was in heaven and I spent, um, about four months there, just, just, I did, I did some coursework, but mostly I traveled around and I, and, and I talked to people and I took photographs and I interviewed people and I interviewed people about politics. And I, I kind of, it, it, it helped me shape a worldview, um, very much centered around the, the, the damage that the United States was doing overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I pursued that. And I think I pursued that when, um, and when I got back my sophomore year, I knew that the first thing I was going to do when I got out of college was join the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. um, which, which I did. And I ended up spending uh, the next five years in Africa. Right. Um, so, and then I came back and went to graduate school. But, but, but all, you know, all, I think all of this is a, of a piece, really, in terms of, um, it's all storytelling to, to, to in, in a way, whether, and, and I'll tell you, I can tell you how I got into filmmaking later, but it's the idea that you walk into a situation of um, where there's a million things going on and, and you find, you find the one thread that is going to best capture, um, you know, a vast and complicated um, ecosystem of sorts um you know and 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 there's a book i read a long long time ago um i was reading about apartheid in south africa and i'd read a lot of books about it and i was interested in it uh and then i read a book by bill finnegan called dateline soweto and dateline soweto was simply the story um of one uh black south african journalist and what 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 his daily life was like, what it was like for him to try to cover stories for a newspaper based in Soweto, and I understood then more than I did reading you know these big fat academic tomes that one story well told uh, can can capture more and um, inform more and and be much more effective than you know five hundred pages of of an academic study that covers virtually everything 
or that attempts to cover virtually the wheels. Sure, and sanitizes it. And we should uh, mention, I mean, and I guess this also, it touches on your, your path then to, to make writing films and then making films, is that you wrote The Road to Hell, which you spoke about your, um, your experiences in Somalia and foreign aid. Um, and why did you choose, I mean, there are many stories. I mean, you also had worked as an aid worker as well. There are many stories around you, but why did you choose to focus on that particular area? On the, on the age stories? Yes. Um, well, one is, you know, I, I, I've always been kind of a political creature as well. And when I would occasionally come home from Africa, Americans were, um, I found them so ignorant about anything outside of, of, of you know, um, what was going on right around them. And then I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm talking about, you know, people who are more or less educated. Um, and everybody had this sense that like, you know, oh, we're doing all this for these people and we're sending all this food over there and, 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 and you know, we're helping and we're helping and we're helping. I learned an important lesson as a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. And which is when I, I, I was in a fairly remote village in Kenya teaching in a secondary school I was teaching, I mean, I was teaching Shakespeare and I was teaching physics and all kinds of stuff. Um, and, but in the context of life in that village, I was the one who needed the help. They knew more than I did about everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I, the idea that, and, and it struck me as absurd, the idea that, you know, Americans had this sort of imperial, almost imperialist idea that we could go overseas and, you know, because I'm, I have a bachelor's of, uh, degree from, an, you know, from an Ivy League university or something, that I have anything in the world um, to teach, you know, a farmer in, in, in Africa, uh, Central America, Asia somewhere, anything about anything. Yeah. And I developed a real respect for, you know, what people knew and, and understood that, you know, people, people behave rationally. People do... It, people within their own environments tend to behave somewhat rationally and, and that if it appears irrational from the outside, uh, then we don't understand the environment. And, and that, so one of the things that I, I learned as a, as, as a Peace Corps volunteer was uh, shut up and listen. And just listen and listen and listen. And, you know, there's, wow, there's a wealth of stuff out there, you know, and, and, and it's just because and, people will talk. Um, and, and I still try to do that. I mean, occasionally I can get on my soapbox and, and, and riff for a really long time. Sure. Um, but, but for the most part, um, I, I think of what made me very, very much a natural journalist in, in that way. And um, um, I had a lot of opportunities to get involved in things overseas, whether it was to stay in aid work or, or to, to work for, uh, um, when I got out of graduate school, offers to like join financial institutions and, um, yes. you know, World Bank kind of stuff. And then, you know, there's a lot of, or, or investment banking and stuff. I, ha I have a master's from Columbia. Um, but I took a job for $17,000 a year um, writing for um, this little magazine about Africa. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and it gave me the opportunity to keep traveling and keep reporting. And, and uh, you know, I just loved it. I loved it for years and years. Mm. 
um, and then worked for the, you know, the Village Voice and a lot of other places along the way. Well, yeah, you've worked for some wonderful publications and then, and then you compile these experiences and you write uh, The Road to Hell and I guess that gets seen by HBO or um, I guess that's been described by uh, as, as like a seminal work in terms of uncovering the kind of mismanagement or misconceptions of foreign aid and yeah, it wasn't about mismanagement so much. Um, you know, I, I kind of had a theory about foreign aid that, uh, you know, people would criticize foreign aid and say, look, they're stealing the money, they're stealing the money. And my my, my, my approach to it was, you know, the, the more money that gets stolen, the less damage we can do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, the, uh, I, I understood most foreign aid a, as an instrument of foreign policy. Yes, and that, and and the, and the point of my book really is that all these charities and aid organizations that we we revere and have revered over the years are really um, subcontractors of, of doing American foreign policy, or uh, um, you know, in those the EC in those days or the EU now foreign policy. Right. Um, and and so because that's where all the money came from. I mean, you can donate your twenty dollars a month to it to an organization, but that's not going to keep them afloat. What keeps them afloat is the fact that they're they're doing contracts for for sovereign states, mm -hmm. and sovereign states are not generally not going to pay for things that that go against their own political interests. Yeah. So I kind of wrote up a whole treatise on neocolonialism and aid and stuff like that, yeah. which put me in in bed with some people I really despised who were the people whose idea was like, we should stop foreign aid because we're a bunch of horrible ingrates. Uh, I shouldn't say mismanagement, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, like a misanalysis of what, um, yeah, I mean, not helping in the way that would be helping. I mean, I think. Yeah, it's not, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I've always been against, for example, food aid and, and, and my, uh, I, I think one of the, I wrote either in my book or somewhere else at one point, it's just saying, you know, I've been in the middle of, of a dozen horrible famines in my, in my life and nobody who had money ever starved to death. Mm -hmm. It's not a, it was never a question of food. It's a question of economics and a question of politics when, when, when you see this mass starvation. Right. And I was highly, highly critical of, of live aid in, in the mid eighties. Um, you know, I know Bob Geldof's heart was in the right place doing live aid and we are the world and all of that. Uh, but ultimately that was a disaster. Oh. Um, that, I, I, people have written about it since then, but ultimately it was. And, and, I, and I think that, um, I think people understand it now. And some organ aid organizations such as CARE have said they're going to stop distributing U.S. surplus food. Mm -hmm. um, that's happened in the last uh, 10 years or so. So I think I've had some effect. Though I get letters all the, I still get letters all the time from people just discovering my book who were doing aid work who were saying, oh my God, I can't believe this. nothing has changed. Yeah. And so how would you say, I mean, yeah, the way the situation is now and, you know, famines haven't gone away and uh, how, what, would, what do you think is a, a better solution than our current systems in that regard? Well, I, I think that what we need to be doing is, is simply, it's complicated. There's, there's a whole ecosystem that goes on. You know, we bought um, the West in general, buys from poor countries, tea, coffee, cocoa, 
um, and, and raw materials. We don't buy a lot of manufactured goods from, from, a, from a lot of these countries. I mean, it's starting to happen in parts of Asia, obviously, but that, but then that gets into the whole issue of child labor and, and, and everything else that, that um, we all abhor. Um, that, I don't think Americans in particular understand the amount of our tax money that goes to subsidizing agriculture. In this country, American agriculture, which is controlled by a handful of private corporations, and um, we don't, we are not used to paying what the true cost of our food is. Mm -hmm. And so, in you know, if you were a real pure capitalist, which I'm not, but if you were, and you you would have the free movement of labor and goods across across the entire planet which means we would be importing foodstuffs from countries that where they can actually grow it much more cheaply than we can grow it here in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't happen because we've got, there's all kinds of protective barriers and whatnot that, that are up. So, you know, starting uh, having fair trade relationships, paying uh, to uh, what the true cost of producing coffee is and the true cost of producing cocoa and the true cost of producing tea, I think you'd end up having uh, people in, in uh, one, you'd have a lot more money flowing to farmers, uh, not to these, not to the, the middlemen who, who do make all the money in, in the commodity business. Um, well, I'm getting way off the farm here, aren't I? No, I know. I think it's interesting because a lot of our students are not just studying the arts; they're studying international relations, studying and and whole, and, and and the food economy. And, you know, that's what the COVID is coming out of. You know, <laughs> so it's all right. into it. It is fascinating, but of course, I do want to talk about your fiction films. You know, these are real stories, and those are you know emotional stories that are invented. But I do want to stay on this a bit because then you talk about. Subsidized um, farming, and then there's these secondary costs like the obesity crisis in America because of the, um, corn syrups and all these other things that are cheap and yeah, cheap subsidized food. Yeah, I mean the the we 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 grow all this this corn that for starters is not good for anybody whether you eat the corn or have the you know once in a while eating. The, your, your corn is fine, but we yes, they end up turning it into the high fructose corn syrup and, and ethanol and, and stuff like that, which is again all subsidized by the government, mm -hmm. uh, which is simply to support uh, commercial massive commercial farming operations, not the small farmer. Mm -hmm. So that um, you know the economics of it is is is, is completely backwards, you know, and for a bunch of people who, who, like, who like to uh, tout the, the advantages of capitalism uh, when it comes to the food economy, um, we, are, we are as socialist as, 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 you know, the Soviets were. Sure. And, and, and other um, things too. I mean, the military and, you know, it's... Well, the military, the shipping industry is another one. I mean, one yeah. of the things I think I mentioned in the book is that... Um, the when we ship food, when Americans ship food overseas, it it has to be on U.S. flag carriers, which which charge multiples of what um, of what um, the uh, you know it, the then the competitive market would 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 can bear. So it's it's really about subsidizing American industry and and um, 
you know, I believe I can't remember the name of it now, but the whole Food for Peace was was originally, you know, which um, which is this program under which we dump surplus food overseas was originally um, a, a farm assistance act. I mean, and, and they changed the name of it because it sounded better. Right. So I don't, I want to, I mean, this, that's, that's your roots in writing and you spent many years there and I'm, I imagine you're drawing on it for your experience in terms of your foundations as a screenwriter, director now, but I don't want to neglect that all these years that you are, you're well, now working on um, Shriver uh, film. Um, well, I don't know because I don't know about filming is paused at the moment, but um, you know, that's really interesting. I was just reading it here before we, um, Got onto the interview, so um, I don't want to skip over. I want to speak about your evolution. Yeah. But did you, at some point, like get a fatigue of like being in Africa and, and seeing these things and seeing mistakes being repeated? And um, or what what attracted you to Hollywood? I mean, they pay better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they, they, well, not all, not always. Not There's always. The myth, the myth, yeah. you know. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm mostly a writer. I'll tell you, it's, it's a story. It's a good story, I guess. I mean, I, I yes, I spent the, the end, toward the end of my journalistic career. I, you know, when I was a journalist in Somalia, I was, I was my mid thirties mm. when I started there in the early nineties. Uh, actually, it, was, it goes back way before that, but in terms of like the, the, the real conflict, which started, I believe in 89, um, in, in Somalia, but you know, I was young, but but I was also one of the older people doing that. Mm -hmm. sure. And it's really a young person's game to 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 do that to a certain extent. You know, you've got to be just stupid enough to believe that nothing bad can happen to you. Mm. And over my time in and out of Mogadishu, I, I don't know how many journalists were killed, but there were there were quite a few, and uh, I didn't. You know, at night, the other journalists would get together and drink and, and talk about why that couldn't have happened to them. You know, we're, we're, we're as, as human beings, we're wonderful at rationalizing things. Yeah. And it would be like, oh, you know, he. everybody knows you don't go into that part of town at two o'clock in the afternoon when or some, some junk like that. And then everybody would go out and we'd walk around and, and travel around with guns and uh and we would, the journalist said, I never carried a gun as a journalist, but but you would hire people to, you would hire guards to protect you, mm. which I was aware only kind of created this whole economy of of of, um, of guns and ammunition and and um, you know, the, and I, I think I wrote in the book, yeah, I was never really sure if you were paying people to protect you or paying them not to shoot you. Mm. Um, because that was that was the economy in Somalia during 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 this time. Um, so I was in and out a bunch, and, and there were times when I was one of a very few journalists there because I was just stupid enough to stay during some very dangerous times. Uh, and I ended up doing some, I should back it up and say that I was, I've always been interested in film. And, and, and part of my, my interest in, in, in Africa came um, from watching movies, you know, movies set in Africa as a kid. You know, black and white on the television on Saturday afternoons, kind of thing with my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, films about the French Foreign Legion and stuff like that. I mean, in retrospect, they were horribly racist films. Yeah. But but there but there was I I that's not what I took out of them. I took out of them that that this would be a really interesting place to to go. Mm. Um, 
And I actually tried my hand at writing screenplays during the 1980s a couple of times just by myself and um, actually trying to option uh, in the mid, I was reporting out of Uganda in, in the mid eighties when Yori um, Museveni, who's now the president was, was a, um, was still a guerrilla leader fighting against the, the, the regime. And during that time, I, I was sort of out in the, in sleeping outside and doing a lot of stuff. I, I had, I read a copy of Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I thought, wow, this would make a great movie. Um, when I got back to New York, I, I, at one point I called, but I realized that the, you know, the rights had been owned for many, many years and um, I wasn't about to get the rights to, to make a screenplay. Mm -hmm. So that was always kind of in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a, I mean, the, the thing that really changed me, a couple of things, the reason I, I got out of doing it. Um, I have a very distinct memory of sitting with a good friend of mine, um, Carlos Mavrolian, who was a cameraman, he was Greek, um, based out of London. And we were sitting across the bed of a colleague of ours, we were in Nairobi Hospital. Uh, and he had been shot and he was intubated and all of that. And, and, and Carlos and I were, I remember we had this conversation like, we gotta stop doing this, we're getting, we're getting too old. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of these days, one of us is gonna get killed. Um, sure enough, Carlos was eventually did get killed uh, in, in Pakistan. I'm, and there's a lot of questions around how he died that I, I won't get into. Um, but I, I was kind of running out of gas at that point. And the other thing that happened really was that the destruction of journalism as I knew it, mm. um, Even then? you know, All right. late the late nineties. Yeah. I mean, oh, the village voice started yeah, the late nine, the, the Village Voice started going under uh, in a way. I mean, there were the free newspapers started getting out, and then the internet started, even then, started taking over some of the classified advertising stuff. And I remember being called, um, a magazine called me and asked me if I would be interested. I think this was probably, I was recently married, so it was probably 97, 98, asked ask me if I'd like to go to Baghdad. To which I replied, "Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting assignment. Let me let, let me do that." And they offered me so little money to do it, mm -hmm. and they said, "This is the this is the magazine economy now." Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was literally 20, 20 or twenty five percent of what I would normally get for doing an article. And mm -hmm. I said, "You know what? I can't afford to do that." Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm living in New York. City. It's just it's mm -hmm. as much as I would like to do it. There's a time in your life where there's a time in my life as a journalist where I had no money personally. But I could live off expense accounts and, you know, the paper, you know, people I was working for would pay for hotels and flights and stuff like that. And you kind of, you kind of stitch your life together. Um, but I, I, I come back and I've gotten married and, um, um, and then we eventually had a kid and then I, then I kind of gave it all up. Sure. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I don't consider myself a journalist, although I guess, you know, interviews is kind of journalism. But I won't say what's the publication, but it's a, a well-known, noted uh, newspaper. But what they want to give for interviews, and they want to cut it to nothing. And I thought, well, you might as well do a press release. I, it cost me about that much to transcribe it. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and, and so we, we, I just give it away. And then, you know, students can get something from it. Because I'd much rather do that and have you know, allow us to go off script and talk about foreign aid and, and all the things that are really interesting, you know, um, 
instead of like press release journalism. You know, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's this whole world of, you know, there are people who are still being asked to write things for free, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 sure. it's, and, and um, which is really insulting to anybody. Yeah. Um, but you would never, you would never ask your dentist to, to fill a cavity for free or, you know, somebody to, the guy who just to come fix my air conditioning, you know, he's, he's going to give me a bill. I would never say, hey, thanks, but could you do that for free? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell other people how good you are. Mm -hmm. um, but, but people expect people to write for free. They don't understand what it takes. And I think when I turned down that, that, that job to go to Baghdad, I remember explaining to the editor, you know, I don't just go spend two weeks in Baghdad writing, you know, interviewing and writing a story. I'll, I'll, I'll spend a bunch of time doing a lot of homework beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll come back and then, you know, I'll, I'll do my research and I can, you know, I can take three weeks, four weeks to write a story sometimes. And then I have to recover from all of that. You know, I you're can't just switch your gears. And, you know, on top of that. On top of that, you're risking, you're risking your life. Yeah. And, um, it's kind of cool. I mean, I loved actually doing the work. It, it was, you know, asking questions, taking notes, um, and, and then find it, you know, finding my mentor in journalism was, was a guy named Richard Ben Kramer. Um, one of the great journalists of all time. And I met Richard in, in Africa in the early 1980s. And Richard taught me one thing. He said, he said, every five minutes as a journalist, stop and ask yourself, what's the story? What's the story? And, and the point is, in, you can walk into any world and kind of get lost in the details. But when you know the story, you know the story you're trying to tell, then you know what, what the details are you need to pay attention to. Sure. And you're, you are carving a story out of this you know, life is chaos. Um, so it's, it's very interesting how the writer's mind, the writer's ear, so important, is trained. Uh, and that, that segues into screenwriting, um, this economy to the driving force. What's the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, uh, before you became, you know, started developing your own um, scripts and, and directing, you, you wrote scripts for a number of the big production companies. I guess it's a, it's a kind of classic. I think some, some of those, are, they've, they've been optioned and are still waiting or... <laughs> so you yeah, said, I want to do this myself. <laughs> De development hell or, or yeah. yeah i mean I, I, what what it's it's what happened was um my book on foreign aid uh, the road to hell was optioned several times mm -hmm. um and it was nice it's nice you know it's like it's it's money for nothing mm -hmm. uh, or or getting paid more money for something i should have gotten paid more for to begin with right um and then uh hbo came to me at one point wanting to option the book it would have been their second option on it but in the meantime i had already optioned it to another production company but i had started working on the script mm -hmm. at that point and this is 1998 i think uh 1999 something like that uh and i said no uh you can't option it's under option but i have another story and they sent a writer to New York to talk to me from, from LA, a guy named Stephen Tolkien. And, and Stephen and I, I talked through the story and he loved it. 
And he said, you know, well, I, HBO will buy this from you. And I said, I don't want to sell the story. Mm -hmm. I want to write the screenplay. Yeah. And he was an experienced screenwriter. And, what, and he went back to HBO. And, you know, good things happen in life because somebody helps you. Mm -hmm. and, and somebody lends you a hand. And HBO offered me really good money simply to sell the story. Mm -hmm. And and Stephen stood up for me and said, "No, I, you know, I like this guy. I'm gonna, I want to write the script with him." So it was my first screenwriting credit, mm -hmm. and it got me into the Writers Guild, and we, and it also got me. It was something that used to count in screenwriting in those days, which was um, your quote. Mm -hmm. You know what you what you got paid. You wouldn't get paid less than than your quote for the next one. So it set me off in a in a pretty good position. Um, it was a very tough script. I mean, it, it was it was based on some of my foreign aid stuff, um, and it is not a happy ending. It's about a, I mean, the short, short, long and short of it is, it was a young idealistic American kid who ends up starting a war and destroying a village. Um, and, and it was a very dark story, and HBO just thought it was way too dark. Still a good script. Right. Um, they're sad. always hungry now they're really hungry like for i think you called it reality hunger um or something yeah. like that um yeah sometimes it's strange to know how dark the things are our, our our ability to accept you know dark and strange i think is being stretched by reality <laughs> as, the, as the days go by yes well well but it's hard you know you can uh, there's craziest stuff happening now that i think i i ever would have made up you know yeah you would have thought uh, no one's gonna believe this right uh, um but you know screenwriting i mean i i kind of took to it very very naturally because it's very similar to journalism yes in that it's very streamlined mm -hmm. you know you 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 need to take a lot of complicated things and, and screenwriting is very structured uh, and, and you need to cut, you need to cut a line through a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff is implied and, and it needs to be much more ultimate than the sum of its parts. I'm Catherine Vasiliev, a recent graduate from American University where I obtained a master's degree in global media. I studied communications, journalism, media, and international relations. And so hearing Michael Marin's conversation on his career has been very interesting to me. He has been able to combine international relations, journalism, and film into his career path. And so seeing his journey from being in school to the Peace Corps, to writing while being abroad, to taking those experience and lessons in order to write a book, which eventually led to a film, has been very interesting for me to listen. I myself wonder how I can interlude all my interests together to create a career out of everything that I am interested in. With Michael's career, I've been able to see and learn how one person has been able to do just that for themselves. And so for me, being able to see other people's paths and how they were able to cultivate their careers really helps me see how it can be done and that it can be done and it helps me get inspiration. One specific thing that I found interesting was his note on how he first understood that he wanted to become a writer. And so he talked about when he was in fifth grade, he was able to write a short story and got complimented by his teacher saying that he was a great writer. And sometimes we overlook our early days and 
we don't think much about it when it comes to our career path. But in reality, when we're little, that really shows us what our deep and true passions are before the craziness of the world and other people's opinions and our own doubting thoughts get to us. And so I really enjoyed hearing about that with his life. With me specifically, I was able to reconnect with a childhood friend recently, and she brought up the idea that I used to love reading and writing, which I have brought into my studies, but I didn't focus on it too much. And so that really rekindled my love for writing and has shown that journalism is a career path that could be very interesting for me and one that I could be successful at. So being able to reconnect with that childhood friend and having her tell me that that was an interest of mine as a childhood has really confirmed my passions and where I'm going with my studies and my career choices now. I also found it interesting that Michael Marin is a foreign correspondent or he was a foreign correspondent. I specifically took a class on foreign correspondence last semester at American University as part of my studies. And so being able to hear firsthand somebody's experiences while being out has been very intriguing to me because not every journalist has the opportunity to be a foreign correspondent and actually going out into the field abroad. I think that being a foreign correspondent ties in journalism and international relations very nicely. And so I love how he's been able to learn about the world And so I found it very interesting to hear about his experience being a foreign correspondent and the different things he's learned about the world and how he's been able to tie in his interests all together into the career path that has come about. Uh, I think that journalism skills really helped me to to become a good good screenwriter. Um, And I sold a whole bunch of screenplays. It um, It was like really easy. Nothing ever got made. Yeah. But I would get hired, and I would go to I would go to L.A., and I, I would. Um, it's a question of just just learning how to, to 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 take really complicated things and and cut a cut a line through it. Mm. Um, and it gets back to what Richard Kramer told me all those years ago. What's the story? What's the story? Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm writing a screenplay, I'm, I'm always. I just finished one yesterday. Um, wow. I'm all, I'm all, I'm asking myself, what's the story? What's the story? Constantly, you know. Because you write, yeah, I could write some great scene. When I first started off, right, I'd write these great scenes. I think they were great scenes anyway, you know. Uh, and and ultimately, it was like, eh, it doesn't really belong there. So I, let me get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's interesting uh, from like the 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 scre- the screenplays that you've chosen to adapt now being as director um shriver Sh- uh, uh, a short history of decay these are more domestic stories or you know mm-hmm. um they're not overseas why did you choose uh, maybe maybe it's to, to locations and things are expensive but or why did why were you drawn to these subjects i mean they're dramatic when on a person well sh- short history of decay i i i had made a decision I, I had I had a I had a couple of things happen, and part of it has to do with the film business, which which is that you know the writer we all went on strike in two thousand eight, it's a long time ago, and then you know writers who have no sense of the economy the economy collapsed the same year, and nothing was ever the same again. Um, you know I used to be able to go sell ideas on pitches, uh, and and that stopped happening, um, and so I decided after that you know what. I'm tired of selling scripts. I'm tired of selling scripts that don't get made. I'm going to write something that I can I can shoot myself. I can shoot and direct myself. Um, so I had to keep. I I wanted to keep it very small and very domestic. 
and very personal. Um, but I also deeply, you know, it gets back to the streamlining. I also believe that you can tell much, much bigger stories. Um, the more specific, the more personal it, it, it can get something you got, I think the more universal it can be. Uh, you know, and that's, that's why we respond to memoirs. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, the, you know, the idea that this is, this is one person's specific experience, but um, I, I think we're all, we all have the same experiences. We, all, we, we can all, we're any story well told, I think any other human being, for the most part, can relate to. Um, if it's honest, if it's, if it's really honest. And, and, that, and achieving that honesty is hard. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, I think it's harder than, than um, you know, trying to tell the story in the middle of, a, of a, an African civil war. Right. Um, because you really, really need to, um, you need to go inside yourself, you know, and, and, and uh, it took me a while to do that. I, I, I it, you know, I, I was, I, I, when I was reporting out of Africa, I, I always avoided trying, writing about myself. I used to hate journalists who would go and they would go to Sudan and southern southern Sudan during during some horrible stuff and write about, you know, here I am and it's so dangerous and the bullets are flying. But I'm I'm your intrepid reporter and you know but and 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 my my response to them was always, then go home. You don't have to be there. You're writing about people who are stuck here. This is about their lives. I don't care about your life doing that. Mm -hmm. So I tried. I, I and and so I, I always had a. A real, it took me a long time to be able to write personally about anything. Mm. And so this, um, I'm sorry, I just kind of, no in, you know, in, in the short history of decay, not, I mean, not everyone has those experiences, like your overseas experiences. The wars that they have are much, you know, in America, much like dealing with a parent with Alzheimer's or and your parent has a stroke, having to take on those responsibilities. What were your experiences of that and that drew you to it? Or? Um, my mom did have Alzheimer's mm. and you know, it's, um, she died, she died of it a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, and this was written before that. And, and it, I, I was interested in, in the short history of decay, the idea that there were the many, many years where she knew she had Alzheimer's. Mm. Uh, and the, the way she used her intelligence and creativity to constantly cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. Um, you know, I remember walking with her on the beach and she started asking me about my brother's kids. And I, I and I said to her, then, you know, those are Jonathan's kids, not mine. And she said, oh, I know. I just thought, you know, I mean, she would, she would just sort of cover it. She knew. And, and so I tried to talk to her about that, but she was there. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. She was in this kind of, not that she was in denial, but she needed to kind of move forward. So I was interested in that as a character. What, what, um, it's about how we survive. Mm. And, you know, I mean, on some grander scale, I mean, that's, that's all these, all, a lot of the stories I told out of Africa were like, you know, how do people survive? And people survive in the, in the worst situations. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I remember being in famine camps in, in Northwestern Kenya with, with the Sudanese refugees and, and uh, just, you know, sitting with them and talking with them and, and um, you know, there, there was laughter and there was singing and there was, and there was tragedy in the middle, in the middle of all of that too. But, but, you know, 
you kind of develop a kind of sense of wonder about, about humanity. Um, so I wanted to kind of go inside with that to a, to a certain extent. And also I wanted to write something that I could, I could shoot for, you know, half a million dollars. And, um, Is that what's that budget? Oh, it looks. But it was, it was less than that actually. In, wow, in the well, end, that's, but... well done. that's well done. And it's so moving too. And we should say also, you know, even though, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's heartwarming and uplifting too. And there's a lot of moments of humor and there's a, a kind of, um, you know, tenderness and a kind of romantic, you know, there, there are other things. Excuse me, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, look, you know, that was my film school, making that movie. Yeah. And you know, Milos Forman helped in the beginning, that was instrumental in... Uh, Milos, is a, Milos is a good friend. Um, and I, for many, many years, I, I had, um, uh, I had, Milos and his wife and my wife and I had dinner together almost every Sunday night Wow! for many, many years. Um, and it was kind of a regular thing. And, and um, I learned a lot from him and, and through him also met um, Jean-Claude Carrier, who's a, who's a screenwriter. Uh, he had written um, Belle du Jour and some other amazing oh. film. And he, he worked with Bunuel. Yeah. Um, and and so... I got to know him somewhat, and, and um, so um, yeah, Milos was listed as an executive producer on a film, but but you know, I, I he just basically let me use his name to raise the money. Yeah, <laughs> but he did. He was he was an inspiration and and, and a good friend, and and um, his, his death a few years ago was a was a huge loss. Um, but but you know. I, I, I love his movies and, and his early his early Czech films for me are also an inspiration. Uh, the Fireman's Ball. I mean, he, he was able to make little personal films that were also deeply political. Um, you know, work, working working in Czechoslovakia in, in, in the sixties, um, you had to do that. Yeah. So, well, that's a, yeah, that's a great film school in, in itself too. And as you said, just having someone who like your teacher in fifth grade you know saying you know this is a story that should be told and uh, you you have that voice in you um and and mike houseman was also and I, I just like to speak about your different collaborators uh, michael houseman worked with me on the at the beginning he ultimately was not didn't work on the film but was was at the at the, the beginning michael michael houseman if you look him up has produced a more i as if as if He's an assistant director, producer. He's more films than maybe anybody in history. Mm -hmm. um, he's involved, and he's worked with all the great directors. And he kind of set me off, and on, and Mike and we scouted locations in Florida and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then he got to hang out with my dad somewhat, um, which was which was a total trip. My parents were living in Florida while we were down there scouting locations for a short history of decay. We ended up shooting it in North Carolina, actually. Yes, who was um, the one, the, the actress, it was from there or lived there, yes? Uh, Linda Lavin, yeah. Well, yeah, that's not what, it's a, just a coincidence that she was living there. I mean, yeah. The film business is crazy. People, people go shoot films where you can, where you can get uh, incentives from the States. Sure. Um, Linda, I mean, I went to, I really wanted Linda. Strangely, um, not strangely, I sort of knew it. Um, she and my dad knew each other when they were really young. <laughs> um, she remembers my my dad. My dad is old, older than Linda, uh -huh. by, by many years. But 
uh, my father's, my grandfather and her father were in business together oh. in, in Maine in, in, in the 1940s. Oh, so that's, that's a big history. And is your, I don't mean to be so literal, but is your dad anything like Harris Eulin? I interviewed Harris, so I was just curious. Oh, I love Harris. Harris, you know, I, always, I talk to Harris all the time. Um, and he, um, I call him the nice version of my father. Oh. <laughs> he was inspired by my dad in, in that certainly, you know, the kind of gruffness, the, 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 the guy was really soft inside. Um, there's, a, there's an incident in um, Short History of Decay where Linda Lavin goes, you know, after his fa the father had a stroke, he drove himself to the hospital. Mm. My dad did that. My dad was having a stroke and, and, re and he would not let my mother call an ambulance. He just got in the car and drove while he was having a stroke. Right. Um, so ha ha Harris channeled that really nicely, but he was also, he was, he was also as a person, he's much sweeter than my dad was. My uh -huh. dad also died the same year as my mom. So I, I, um, he's not around to defend himself, but, um, yeah, he, he's, he was pretty gruff. Yeah. But I mean, obviously he imparted some of that that allowed you to be a war correspondent and, you know, I'm sure. Well, you know, uh, my, what's really strange is all the years I was doing all of this stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, Africa, all those years in Africa and all those years traveling around and, you know, in the Sahara and West Africa, all over. My parents never said a word to me. Yeah. No, no, hey, be careful. Hey, you know, I don't think you should do that. You know, hey, you know, I heard people getting killed over there. It was like they, they always, they were really supportive of anything I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It was only much later, I said, I said to my wife at one point, yeah, my parents, they didn't care. And she said, oh, of course they cared. They just never told me. Yeah. And it was true, you know, I mean, they were extremely, extremely supportive. So, yeah, support your kids. I do yeah, think that whatever, that's whatever they want to do, because, um, you know, I, I think I think my dad probably if, if he'd had more freedom in his life would have would have done something more creative. Right. Yes. Because um, we we're, were very similar. But he, he, he was he ended up being a businessman and having a pretty good life, I think. Sure. That, yeah, all that sense of duty. And it's interesting because I was partially raised by my grandparents. So intergenerational. And then my grandfather was quite a bit older than my grandmother. So they they care and feel very deeply, but they don't always say it. Like, it's really shorthand. <laughs> it's, it's just, they expect you to know. Um, so now Shriver, you're working on the great cast. Um, what attracted you to, to, to that book, which again, it's a, a more domestic, not a family now, but writers, just, just the, t tell us about the story and what drew you to it. Yeah. I mean, I was, the story really is, um, it's the book by Chris Belden, but I heard Chris, here's the, this is the original copy of the book. It wow. says in the front page right here, Okay, I'm the, uh, the to that. Michael, look, looking forward to the movie version, signed in this day in November 2013. Okay, and that was, bef was that before you had, uh, it was just like a, that, no, when I, did you? I heard Chris, I heard Chris reading in a bookstore uh -huh. from the book, uh -huh. and he read just the very beginning of it, and it was really about um, the idea of imposter syndrome. Yes. So it's sort of this writer who um, has, for, has written this book, but he's forgotten he's written the book. He's totally blacked it out. Uh -huh. um, and he's on his way to a writer's conference. Uh 
Uh, and, and it really has to do, I think a lot of people have that. I think, I think it's kind of a, uh, and I think it's not, it's not, I don't think it's unique to the arts, mm-hmm. but a sense of like, wow, how did I get here? Do I really deserve this? Mm-hmm. I certainly have felt that, you know, there are times when it's like, wow, I mean, um, I, I, we did this, 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 and suddenly, you know, here I am standing on the set directing a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this is really cool. I mean, I, I love directing a movie. I mean, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than being on a set where I direct a movie. Mm-hmm. So, um, much more fun than writing the screenplay. All right. And well, it's creative in its own way. Uh-huh. And, and so, I, I was, I just wanted to kind of explore that that sense of, of um, it's it's about our own sense of identity about about who we are, you know. And, and so, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, I was on an airplane once, and I saw that you know, a pilot get on. He was he was a guy in his probably forties and you know, on the co-pilot and the people. And I, I, fly, I travel a lot. So, you know, over women who are flying the plane, whatever. And I think, do you ever have a moment where you think, huh, do I really know what I'm doing? Yeah. You asked um, that of the pilot. I w- well, I wonder. I would not ask the pilot that. <laughs> but, but I think a lot, but I think in the, I think in the oh. arts, a lot of people do have that, you know, you're, you're, you're writing and, and do you know what you're doing? I mean, I wrote The Road to Hell and, and then next thing, you know, I'm sitting, I'm on CNN and I'm on MSNBC and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the talking head thing and I'm yapping and I'm on television all the time and um, people are interested in what I have to say. And then every once in a while, I remember that one of the first TV interviews I have, I still have it on tape somewhere, um, which was on CNN. And uh, I have this, I have this memory of starting down the road, explaining something in a sentence and then think, and then having the thought, I have no idea where this sentence is going. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know how to fly the plane. <laughs> I'm, do I know how to fly the plane? Yeah. I mean, what, uh, and, and, you know, as human, we're, we're just, it's about the human condition as, as, as I see it. You know, it's the human comedy to, to, to steal from Balzac. You know, the, 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 we're all just getting by, you know, we're, we're, we're getting around here and there's this whole ecosystem of, of stars and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I'm dealing with some real movie stars on, 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 on the Shriver set, you know. But oh yeah, Michael Shannon. I mean, really great actors, stars and, you know, great actors. Stars and actors, yeah, and Kate Hudson, and, 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 and they're great. And I really, I've gotten to really like them all personally and all of that. And sort of the star thing falls away when you get to, you get to know them or you get to argue with them or, you know, or, or someone says, I don't like the way you did that. You know, it's all, and, and you understand that it's it's the it's the great human comedy, and 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 I think that that's always sort of interested me. Um, and this Shriver as a film, it's 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 absurd. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he's great. Um, Just even talk about the names. I mean, it's a great <laughs> really. Um, I changed the names in the movie, by the way. Oh, you did. Book. I did. Oh. I changed all the names. Yeah, <laughs> except for Shrivers. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just did be, be, because I didn't want to, t- I didn't want to give it away that much. I oh, wanted yeah. to sort of yeah, exist on another level. Um, yeah, I mean, re- adapting books is a whole nother thing as, 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 as a screenwriter. Um, you've got to, you've got to be willing to like uh, kind of go into, into a book, kind of digest it and then, and then regurgitate it as, as, as a movie, as something completely different. Yeah. 
Um, break it really to I guess. Oh, you you need to break. Yeah, it's a different it's a different thing. You can't a movie can't do. A movie can do things you can't do in a book, and, and but there's an awful lot you're going to do in a book that you can't do in a film. So how do you create that mood? How do you how do how do you how do you create a feeling? How um, you know without without you know when I, when I teach screenwriting, I, I, I the the one thing that I will not stand for is expository dialogue. Oh yeah. You know the dialogue of of um, you know hey remember that time two years ago when um, you know we got caught in the rain, whatever, whatever it is. It's like, that's not how you tell a story. And you should be able to watch a movie with the sound off and understand the story, mm. which is, you know, which is why I love some of the great silence in that way. You know, you, you, there's, there, there, I mean, there's a real artistry to it as opposed to, um, you know, a lot of things that even get by in Hollywood today where there's um, just simply too much exposition and release and hours of voiceover or whatever. Yeah, but that's just my own. That's my own personal. No, I mean, I think it does really kill it. I, the thing is that film is uh, it, it's mo moving pictures, but it's a moving experience. You don't want those static explanations. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's an it's a wonderful art form that I you know I fear in some ways is is threatened. Um, oh, now with the cinemas. Yeah, well, as well one, because street. because the actual. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to theater now, uh -huh. um, you know, in terms of COVID and, and you know, how long are we going to be in this? Is, is, or is this just the way we're going to live from now on? Uh -huh. uh, but they're the movie theaters, but also people, you know, I mean, episodic television has really become a, a completely new art unto itself. Uh, and I have not yet tried my hand at, well, I have tried my hand at that and, I've, and, and failed, mm -hmm. or at least producers who read what I wrote told me I'd failed. <laughs> um, but I still like, I like the, the film form. I, I like the, you know, 90, 100 minutes of, 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 of like, I mean, we're going to tell a story in, in, in this container like this, um, that's, um, and there's so much you can do. And like a film like Parasite comes out this year and, and, and it just mm -hmm. makes me feel, uh, or last year, um, like, wow, yes, look what you can do. Look, 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 look what's happening around the world in, in, in films. And, and um, uh, just the, the depth of humanity that, 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 that you can capture in, 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 in something like that. And, and yeah. you know, let's keep doing that. Oh yeah, I th I mean I I really love the film. I mean in in Paris particularly, we still have a strong well up until like a few months ago still had a strong uh, cinema going culture, and um, so I think that yeah we we haven't cancelled our, our going out to experience stories because it's also the event of it as well, isn't it? It's this whole more immersive way. Um, the great things are is happening with streaming. Um, it's funny because I was talking to, um, you know, the editor of Star Wars, Paul Hirsch, and all these other films, um, and he's saying, well, he thinks that oh, cinema is like going to go the way of opera. <laughs> it's going people. It's going to yes, a little bit. Can you imagine viewing with your lorgnettes? Um, I hope not. I hope not. I think, I think that if. Um, television i mean i don't know how can i speak with any experience but uh, i think that 
television and film, they can coexist and they be competing with each other in the way that if this, ideally, this, the storytelling level keeps on, right, you know, getting raised, you know, people are, um, I guess, in television, it's almost like a novel, uh, like a, a novel, um, like reading a novel or something, this epic kind of thing. So, so you're working on uh, Shriver. That will be coming out soon, or? Well, we have still eight days of filming left. We yes. had a we had a we had a bailout during COVID. Um, uh -huh. I, I we were shooting in Los Angeles. I, I you know thought maybe we could push through those last days of filming. Um, yeah. But ultimately, it just became untenable. So we're still in discussions about how to bring the cast back together, how, how to, because I need everybody, um, the entire cast in one place. Uh, how are we going to shoot with, with all of the new, no one's even sure what they are really, the, the, mm -hmm. the new regulations about how, how you're going to make a movie. Um, you know, I've started another script and I'm thinking like, well, you know, I really should have this like four people in the woods keep sitting six feet apart. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, and what, what can you do with that? What can you, you know, there's I, I, the idea of shooting a crowd scene or, or, or something like that is it's, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there's going to be, you can use CGI, but mm -hmm. uh, that's really, that ends up being really expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's not, and it doesn't have the same feeling of, of like, you know, having, you know, bringing a hundred background artists into, 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 into a, mm -hmm. into a set and, and, and having people bumping elbows and being mm -hmm. with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know how we're going to end up doing this. Um, we'll figure it out. I, I I'm, I'm positive yeah. and we'll finish the movie. I know uh, it'll be enjoyed. We should say that it's, uh, s takes place in a writer's conference, uh, and, place, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's so right for comedy. Yeah, it is. It is um, there's some, there's a bunch of kind of, it's a writer's conference. The idea is the writers there who have shown up the conference because it's a conference that nobody wants to go to. They don't have any big name writers. Mm -hmm. They just have sort of like, you know, people, but they end, but all those people kind of have a humanity about them and, and the idea that it does, um, you know the writing the the writing community like everything else has definitely has a caste system you know and, and there's there you people know who's on top and who's who's you know who's got the best selling books and all that it's kind of um although it is i i mean i should i should also say that it's also very very supportive there's something going on in, uh, there's something on twitter last just last week where writers were writing in about other writers who were really kind to them mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and and sort of what I said earlier, you know, I think everybody, it was Richard Ben Kramer who, who got me into journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was very, he was very helpful. And he read, he read all my early work um, and introduced me to his agent and really, and because he believed in what I was doing and he believed in my vision. Mm -hmm. And so, and in the film world, it was Stephen Tolkien who, 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 who brought me along and, and, and said yeah you know what I'm, I'm gonna stick up for you I'm, I'm gonna you're gonna write this script with me uh, so no nobody gets where they are on on, on their own I mean mm -hmm. you kind of have to you have to earn that to a certain extent but mm -hmm. I don't know anybody 
who can who can honestly say that nobody helped them along in, in, at, at one point and usually there there's more than one person at different times yes and you've taught for a number of years as well you taught screenwriting so you you when you speak of the case system or you speak you from experience what was some of your advice to students uh, emerging screenwriters you know i used to i i have when i've taught i i people are always interested in like they want to talk about how to get an agent and how to and how to and, and, business. And, and, you know they're they're very into the business of it um uh, i've always i've always there's there's a line i always use from it's steve martin actually um who said how do you how do you get ahead you've got to be so good that they can't ignore you or words to that effect yeah uh, and I think I think it's really about de really developing, but it's but it's also focusing, focusing, focusing. You've got to know what you want to do. You need to you need to know what it is you want to write about. You can't. One time, my, my, um, and I'll never make this mistake again. My agent, uh, I'd written the script. My agent didn't like it, and, and she said to me, um, "You know what? You've got all this back. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I'm very involved in politics even today. I." I, I with, with local politics and national politics. And she said, you know all this stuff, why don't you write a political thriller? I can sell a political thriller, they're really selling right now. And I said, all right, and I wrote, you know, I, I went into hibernation for three months and I wrote the worst script I've ever written in my life. Mm -hmm. And I gave it to her and she said, this is terrible. And it's like, yeah, because it, it, my heart wasn't I, wasn't, I wasn't following my passions. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to believe on that in that. I mean, there's always stories of people who kind of uh, you know, understand. Here's the formula: Act One, Act Two. You got to do this. You got to do that, and, and all of that. And, and I've never bought any of that. Um, you know, I, I if if you start seeing the act breaks in a movie, I mean, it, I'm, you're you're kind of you, you're not really watching the movie. Right. I mean, I think it's true. You really have to. I mean, there's a craft, obviously, but the, you should be in love with your project if you expect others to fall in love with it. Yeah, well, to these characters, you've got to, you really need to, you need to get into them and you need to really empathize with them. <clears throat> and you need to be able to sketch them out very, you know, it, you really don't have a lot of tools, especially with like secondary or tertiary characters in, in, in a film. You know, you've got two or three brushstrokes to define them. Mm -hmm. And the minute, the minute you meet your lead characters, it's like, you know, well, w w what is she wearing? How does she carry herself? What is, she, what, you know, um, one of the first words out of her mouth. You know, you you need to know a character really well. You 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 just can't. And that and that requires really it requires empathy, and I, which I think journalism is. It's you know to bring it back to that, it's it's the same thing in, in certainly novel writing. You know, um, you 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 need to have a, a a real level of empathy with with your characters, and and that then that, that's earned. That's earned by by you know listening and paying attention to people and 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 then being really moved and getting getting being moved to, to write something um so i want to be before we go i do want to talk about this other form of storytelling which is interesting that's come you know in the years since you started off as being a journalist is uh podcasting and i think that you've just come from doing a dramatic podcast and well, i'm writing one with my podcasting wife. the future of journalism yes Oh, my wife is my wife. My wife has uh, a successful podcast. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, so Danny Shapiro, I should say. Danny Shapiro, yeah, it's called it's called Family Secrets. Um, and she did that ba based on some things she learned from from the last book she wrote, which we don't have to get into that. Yes. Um, but what it made me the interesting thing about podcasting is that the barriers to entry you know it costs even it costs millions of dollars to make a movie mm -hmm. um usually i mean you can do it you can make it there's all kinds of stories of people who shot them on an iphone and made them expensively yeah but the, but to do a podcast you know you you, you need a bunch of people on a microphone and a lot of imagination so the idea of coming, we were talking about it, and and just in conversation, we came up with a story uh, mm -hmm. for a podcast, and and so we started sketching it out. And we don't, my, my wife and I don't often work together on things. I think it's been twenty years since we've actually written a script together. Mm -hmm. um, part of it's practical, which is like you know we both have to go out and divide and conquer in the world. Mm -hmm. we, we both put our energies into the same thing. But, because you know, you know, it's a business where, you know, if 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 you succeed ten percent of the time, you're doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you can't, you can't, and your most most things fail mm -hmm. in 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 the entertainment business. Um, so uh, we, you know, we decided to work on it, and we, you know, we're kind of stuck in the house now with with uh, you know sheltering at home with with, with COVID at the moment, and, and so we spent a lot more time together than we ever we, we have ever probably uh and we um we cooked this thing up and uh you know we've talked to a couple of people about it and they're really interested in it and, and it'll be a fiction one produced with actors and all of, and, and all of that but um you know there's been a whole lot of things happening now where podcasts have turned have been purchased and turned into television shows yeah and um, very the show home yeah, Homeland on Amazon, I think, and as the, was one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. And now, if you if there's a whole bunch of them, because what it does is it allows you to test an audience very, very inexpensively. Mm -hmm. And they're loyal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're loyal, and if you get an audience for a podcast, then um, you know, then then people then the studios are buying them up, and and now there's kind of been a little bit of a, a frenzy, and everybody's kind of getting into the business, and there's two, there's like thousand new podcasts a day coming out. So it's hard to get people's attention, but um, if you succeed at it, it's uh, uh, it's really interesting. And also, you know, the radio play is really interesting. I don't I don't know if your your older listeners will know. There's something called the Fire Sign Theater. Ah, oh, yes, I've heard of this. Yes, I I listen to um, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they put out these record albums in the '60s and '70s, uh, and they were based on old radio plays. But there were spoofs on the old radio plays. Mm -hmm. um, but and I used to listen to them, and I, I can. And there's a couple of like, like forty minute long fire sign theater things, riffs that I can today repeat verbatim to you. Mm -hmm. I can just go on a riff and do the entire Nick Danger um, from from one of their albums. Um, and uh, so I, I've always enjoyed that that form, and, and and the idea also that you know as a listener, you know the imagine you're using your imagination to a certain certain degree so and i think and i think the law you know yeah the podcast world is really really interesting now and i don't know the whole thing could blow up in a couple of years and be, and be over but i don't think it i think it will be i think people are really into it i think so and i think it's um it's filling a gap um also on the journalistic level it's filling a gap 
for for long form journalism. That's yes. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, also because you know, I mean, it is less expensive to produce for long form journalism than sending a sending television crews and you know doing a document doing a documentary although uh, i've got to say that i'm i love the fact that uh, documentaries are, are um hulu and amazon and and netflix are all investing a tremendous amount of money in, in doing really interesting documentaries. i mean a lot of junks too like the tiger king guy and whatnot but um no it's become really some serious, yeah there's some really good stuff being done and digital technology has certainly made it easier. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, camera this big, you can go in someplace and get good images. And so I, you know, but like everything else, technology is a double-edged sword because it's also allowing a lot of propagandists and people to, to, to do it as well. Um, and and, and um, I think it's easy to sway opinions with, with, with you know, the short political film and whatnot. Uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff going out there. I mean, you know, every every time you look at Twitter, there's new stuff coming across the coming across the transom that you know, yeah. that people need to sort out. What do you feel in terms of the future of journalism? I mean I mean at the point at which you got out of being a journalist, um and now um, you know, it's one, I'm really discouraged by you know I'm sure my politics have kind of shown through what I've been talking about here, but but that, you know, our president right now screaming fake news at everything that's true. You know, if he screams fake news, you know it's true. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and there's a misunderstanding of, of, of journalism, what journalists do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, he's at, at this moment, I mean, at this moment, he's upset because the New York Times has broken the story that about Russians paying bounties to Afghans to kill American soldiers, mm-hmm. right? And so there's been attacks on the New York Times. The reality is that story came from inside his administration. It came from somebody very close to him who was upset about the way things went. Journalists report stuff and they're not making news. Um, and so, but, but journalists have become reviled by, by the right wing in this country as, as they were you know, anytime there, there's a rise of authoritarianism, journalists become enemy number one because the truth is the first victim of, of, of any kind of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. So journalists are needed now more than ever, real journalists doing, doing real work. Um, I think there's a quite a lot of interesting stuff happening domestically. The thing that somebody who was a foreign correspondent for years you know, when I was, I was based out of Nairobi, Kenya for a number of years, and there were people, Time, Newsweek, um, the Boston Globe had someone over there, the Chicago Tribune had someone over there, the Los Angeles Times. I mean, there were people, uh, there were a lot of foreigners who, foreign publications, Le Monde and, and, and um, you know, the, the paper, journalists from all over the world were reporting on what was going on in Africa. Today, there's very few sources for that kind of thing. Um, there's a reason that, you know, Americans should have American journalists in, in countries and the French should have French journalists. And, and because if you're a local journalist, you're under tremendous pressure from, from a government. It's very hard for, for um, you know, I mean, what's going on in China today, it's very hard for a Chinese journalists to, 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 to 
you know, report the truth about what about what's happening. Where you know, as a foreign journalist, you have a little more. Uh, you have you have a level of immunity from from you know from being uh, jailed or, or or persecuted in some way. Um, and, and so, I mean, I would love to see more more you know journalism start to the point where there's more correspondence in more places, because I think we become really ignorant about what's happening in in, in around the world. Um, and, you know, it's, and it makes it easier for authoritarian governments to, to, to suppress news. If, if they're, if the only journalists who, if, if they're in a position where they can silence local journalists, which they can do very effectively. So, um, you know, we're really, for, as in, for Americans, we're left with the New York Times and, and the Post and the Wall Street, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, um, and so, some wire services, and everybody else relies on those sources. You know, the Chicago Tribune doesn't have a Nairobi bureau anymore, um, and, and that's really unfortunate. You know, Time and Time and Newsweek that barely exist, and they don't they don't have bureaus overseas doing that. Um, so, you, you news is, is sourced from fewer and fewer places. In some ways, on the other hand, you've got you know you've got uh, I think a real when the um, when terrorists took over the uh, the Taj Hotel in in, in Mumbai, mm-hmm. you know and suddenly Twitter took over and, and was, I remember seeing this Twitter feed for the first time of like people on the on this site. So I mean, there's again, there's it, it cuts both ways, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, if it wasn't for the New York Times, we wouldn't know. And the Washington Post, we would have no idea what was going on in this administration right now. Well, that's, that's frightening. I mean, they do a good job, but of course, you're also, there's also commercial influences. There's so, you know, you need more than two voices of truth. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, everyone has a different way of seeing the world. And so we, we do need more, more perspectives. Um, I guess I should close. I mean, it's something that we ask of our students and also of our interviewees. And it's, it's yeah, you were talking about, you know, considering the future and we're now all on lockdown or semi-lockdown and um, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. Uh, and I can tell you, you can be hopeful in ways, but I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you feel about as you consider the future? Um, um, and uh, the importance of the arts, but you know, you know, other ways we may also get engaged. You know, I'm more optimistic. My, my son is 21 years old now, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and he's a junior in, in college. Mm-hmm. If they go, if they get to go back to college this year, because I don't know if they will. Um, I love his generation, mm-hmm. and I'm very disappointed in mine. You know, I mean, I'm legit, I'm just too young to have been drafted to go to Vietnam mm-hmm. by a couple of years. Um, I had a draft card. I burned it. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I thought the 60s generation would kind of hang on, and, 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 but the 60s generation has become kind of calcified and, 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 and conservative and uh, I think protective of their own wealth in, in, a, in a very strange way. Um, and, you know, but I see my son's generation and, and for the, for the most part, maybe it's just his friends, um, but they, they seem to be um, aware of things, both, both in terms of um, 
you know, uh, racially. And, and I mean, like my son had, had a friend, he, was, he kept talking about some friend of his, friend of his, friend of his, and, and, and I met the kid, and, you know, and he was African-American. And it, it, and it was interesting because he never thought to mention it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the first thing that came to his mind when, when describing his friend, or if a friend of his is gay or, or, or whatever. I, I, I think um, I'm seeing in his generation, he was born in 1999, um, born in, born into a world that that is inclusive, that 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 does have a sense of justice. That that um, and these are the kids out on the streets today marching for for Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's people from my generation and um, doing it as well, and 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 in other generations. But but I I I see in that generation. I, I don't know. You know, I may be fooling myself, but I I see the a real sense of the environmental issues that we're, we're, we're all dealing with, mm-hmm. um, which I still think is the largest, you know, it, it, I, I think the environment uh, and, and the, the, the horrible exploitation of it that, that's going on in Brazil right now, but also in, in, in the United States under the Trump administration is really a, a, something that reverberates right through in terms of income, income inequality and, and, and racial justice and, and, and all of that, um, that, uh, you know, and, and it goes back to what I wrote about years ago about, about the food economy too. You can't, that's very, very, very tied up in, 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 um, in so many of these, uh, in so many of these issues, you can't get away from that in terms, in terms of, uh, oppression and, and racism and all of that. It's it, the food economy is, is very very much a part of, of all of that. Um, and you know the, when I see, when I see the books my son reads now though, and and uh, I mean like we have a, we have a house full of books. My wife and I are both writers, and and, and he grew up with us being writers. Um, but he's constantly reading books by by you know African American writers and and and. Um, Morikami is his favorite writer, and and, and uh, you know, and he's just delving into stuff, and kind of getting all all of these perspectives. Um, you know, he's re- he's he's read more African American writers at this point in his life than than I think I have, mm-hmm. um, because I I didn't have that. That wasn't that. You know, I mean, I read you know I read Baldwin and and, and um, you know, um, and but but. You know that that perspective was not part of my literary upbringing. I had I had to do that on my own. Sure, you had to seek it um, out. Yeah, and I, and I so I think you know I think it's changing the way kids and 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 some people in this generation are thinking about things. And I and I hope that the leaders of the next generation are 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 are, are these kids. Yeah. Uh, and they've got a real sense of social responsibility from what I've seen. Again, it may just be his friends. I mean, I, I'm no, I'm I I've little... noticed it. I've noticed it with this project, and I wondered, was it just this project? But I do, they have a sense of responsibility and also will shame each other if they're not doing enough. Like they have to take a real pride, like that it's like a sense of identity or what they call woke or whatever. So um, I, I think so. And I guess our job is to empower them and to give them the tools and opportunities to, you know, see their hopes for the future realized. Yeah, but I think they're also doing it on their own. Yeah, they are. You know, I, 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 I think I, 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 that, that really gives me a lot of hope. Um, I just hope it's not too late because uh, in some ways, because the, da- the, the environmental damage is, is, is so vast right now. 
and the um, the erosion, you know, what's going on in this country with the erosion of, of, of faith in the press uh, and the idea that, um, you know, of, of uh, that there's more than one truth about things. I mean, that, that you can have your own truth. Mm-hmm. You can have your own facts, your own, and, 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 um, and honestly, I think the, you know, the, the I, I hope we see a, I mean, there was a rise of religious fundamentalism around the world for a long time. And I, and I, and I think that's also been, it's been a reaction, but I also think it's, um, it's, it's, it's hugely destructive, you know, uh, but again, I, 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 I hope this younger generation understands, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about the world we, we've left them. Yeah. Um, well, you, what, you've given so much in terms of your example of, you know, not just doing that within your own country, but going to India and then to Africa and all these things uh, and to, to, to risk your life to tell these stories that aren't being told. So I, I, I want to thank you, um, uh, Michael Marin, for your, your stories um, through journalism and film, foreign and domestic, uh, for the depth of your empathy and compassion. We're looking forward to seeing a Shriver in cinemas and your other projects at podcasts um i want to thank you uh for adding your voice thank you mia this this has been fun this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast was me Catherine vasiliev winter time was composed by nicholas anadolis and performed by the atheon trio thanks so much for listening has this interview sparked your creative process If so, you can submit your creative works to submission at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website at www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in expeditions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.